1: that's ChumbaCasino.com.
0: No purchase necessary. VGW group void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones...
0: Who get it done.
2: Hi everybody, this is the Cricket Badger podcast.
0: Each badger marks the track with its own scent.
2: His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word reche, meaning digger. Welcome back to the 200th edition, technically 201 now, isn't it? As we go into part two of the 200th edition of the Cricket Badger podcast with George DeBell from ESPN Cricket Info, Dan Norcross from BBC Test Match Special and Ali Martin from The Guardian. I really do appreciate the three guys' time for coming on and giving up their time to come on to the 200th edition of the Cricket Badger podcast and there's plenty more to talk about, so let's get into part two. It's that badger style. George, on, on the on the hundred, is is it going to be ego that keeps the hundred going, or is it actually financial prudence?
0: <laughs> I think financial prudence <laughs> left town some time ago. Uh, I, I don't believe them when they say that the hundred is a profit centre. The only way the hundred makes money is if you exclude in the profit and loss account the money that's been promised to the counties each year and the MCC. Uh, that I, I don't see. Any, I've seen no other figures that dissuade me from that. I think that's a fact, actually. So I think the 100 is still a huge and unnecessary risk. So while I uh, applaud them for believing that something needed to be done and doing it, I think they've done the wrong thing. You know, I could live with them changing the blast to be a 102-ball competition and uh, so, so that it was more... Uh, accessible and bite-sized for free-to-air broadcasters. Uh, I could live with that and play it over two divisions and maybe having an FA Cup as well. I think that uh, the antagonism that they've brought on themselves with, with a, this new-look competition is just, as I say, so unnecessary. The gimmick of it being 100 balls, you're losing more than you gain with that, I think. I don't doubt that if it's ever played, there'll be some uh, entertaining cricket. Cricket's a really good game really like it. Uh, 100 balls, 1,000 balls, don't really care that much about that. It, but, you know, it has been divisible by six for a long time, and I can't really see the benefit of it not being. I mean, I just don't see any positive. So the risk-reward there, I think they got wrong, but that's a small thing, really. The, the bigger issue, I think, is that they will diminish the county game and, in time, make it irrelevant. Uh, uh, that That's my big worry, and I think it's unnecessary. And I'll keep saying uh, there's not that much wrong with our game that more free-to-air broadcasting wouldn't have healed. So, uh, I, again... huge, expensive, unnecessary risk is my view. Uh, I'm not positive it will still go ahead even at this
2: stage. In terms of when ECB changed things, I mean, I've always been massively frustrated by the way that formats have changed and then flip-flopped and changed again and then changed again. And if you're looking for customer buy-in, then you need to keep the same structure for a, a period of time so that people can actually learn to love it and learn to understand it. Otherwise, you know, it changes year on year. You know, even I have to question it sometimes, and I follow county cricket quite closely. And even I have to wonder what's going on sometimes because the, the competition has changed its structure. Uh, the thing, I the thing, George, I I felt that the ECB got wrong with the hundred, like you. You know, I, I can live with cricket. I love cricket. I'll, I'll watch whatever they put up in front of me, pretty much. But they didn't actually pay any attention to what the existing customer, found, you know, what the existing county supporters, what their opinion was in this. And I know they were looking for a new audience, but the existing audience still matters, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, of course it does. And actually, the record of blast audiences was impressive in the fact that it was growing. So if you look at the crowd figures from last year, had the ECB not decided to record blast figures differently from the way they record test sales, over a million people would have come last year. And you would have thought that that was ticket buyers who, who, yeah, would have gone to games. Uh, So that is Uh, something that you would have thought they would want to celebrate. But I think there's this sort of scorched earth policy where they've not wanted to celebrate the blast because they thought they perceived it could threaten. Uh, Undoubtedly, stuff needed to be done, James. We needed to have uh, more diverse playing stuff, more diverse um, audiences in the grounds. Uh, You know, I don't think there's a lot of doubt about that. But whose fault was that? That was because they made the game invisible for years, That's because it's not played in most state schools. So uh, I I, I guess I believe in growing games from the top down, which I know a lot of sensible people don't. But, you know, personally, I didn't really grow up in a a massively crickety family, although my brother liked it. Uh, I I, I saw uh, cricket, the the John Player Special League on BBC Two on Sunday afternoons and fell in love with it. And it was my gateway drug. And I think that actually, you know, to, to to have a... A note of optimism. The fact that some cricket will be back on free-to-air is, is helpful, but I think it's it's a bit too little and it's a bit too late. And I think that the brand may be tainted. Uh, the, the comparison I keep making is with the soap opera El Dorado. Uh, by the time it started, the newspapers hated it. And who remembers whether it was any bloody good or not? The fact is that it didn't work out. And I wonder if the 100 is in the same position. And I'll, I'll go back to the point I made at the beginning. The, the county chief executive voted for two-division T20 tournament. It was stopped because uh, in a chairman's meeting, chaired by Colin Graves, the uh, fear was expressed that you would lose local derbies. Mm. Now, of course, you needn't. You could start every tournament with a local derby day that didn't necessarily have to be part of the competition that followed on subsequently. But I, I think it's interesting that almost every decision made in the Colin Graves era, you could trace back at some stations, think oh yeah that's coincidental coincidental that it benefited yorkshire disproportionately and with that decision you see yorkshire were benefiting disproportionately from derby sales because their other sales in t20 weren't good enough but their derby sales are excellent you know equally i could say the same thing about durham losing their test basis which county did that help it helped yorkshire so i i think that uh, what happened is a nonsense i think that dcms should have been all over it like a rash and that they were very slow and very weak. Uh, and actually, uh, I still think that people involved in it have uh, quite a lot to reflect upon because I don't think that what happened there was necessarily uh, debated, particularly transparently. And I'm not still at all convinced that that's going to be best for the for the game as a whole. But uh, what I would say about the current people involved, you know, Tom Harrison, etc. I disagree with Tom Harrison on lots of things. I I really do think he's sincere about the inclusion method. I I really do think he's passionately uh, committed to having more people from BAME communities, more women involved. I think he believes in the 100 with good intentions. I just think he's wrong.
3: I agree with everything that George said, but I took massive exception to the suggestion that people don't remember what happened to El Dorado because... (laughs) <laughs> it was a truly brilliant uh, soap opera. At the end, the last month of that was one of the the best month of television you could wish to see, and it was a
0: disgrace when it was taken off our screen. You can tell right there that you're talking to cricket journalists, can't you? Because we're the sort of people who have nothing to do. <laughs> was it at one o'clock in the afternoon?
3: But no, <laughs> people were working. No, it was on in the evenings by that stage. Um, what time it, of the evenings? About, about, about 7.30, I think. It was like, like sort of EastEnders. Like EastEnders was on twice a week, wasn't it? And El Dorado was on two or even three times a week. And they, they rushed to the end. And as a result, there was an incredible amount of drama towards the end of that. It was, <laughs> it was just marvellous. There's still doubt to this day whether the main character blew up on that boat
2: or not You're listening you to the Cricket Badger Podcast Eldorado special <laughs> and uh, Dan, it, it, comes, it comes to something when Dan Norcross's most vehement defence of something is Eldorado doesn't it on this, uh, this edition of the uh, 200th edition of the Cricket Badger Podcast oh, 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 oh. Want to get your game the very best it can be the future of coaching mm I'm very conscious we've got quite a lot of questions left to get through and uh, and less time left than uh, I was anticipating. So can we move on very very quickly to the county championship next year. The three conference structure that was in place this time around and um, being muted that it's going to happen again next time. Dan we'll come to you first on this one. Are you in favor of a three conference um division? I mean they're talking about having half and half, aren't they, in the the second half of the season being on merit leading to a Lord's final. Do you like that or do you think it should still remain two-divisional and as it was before?
3: Well, is this just a way of making us have to work for, for being cricket pundits? So we've we've always sort of come up with a yet another way of working out how the county championship is going to happen. I, I really like two divisions. I really did. I, I, but I like it to have integrity. So I like eight teams playing 14 games or nine teams playing 16 games. I, I don't like Ten teams in the first division playing 14 games. I think everybody's got to play home and away against each other. Uh, Or just home. Or or just just one game. Whatever. Whatever it happens to be. But I like two-divisional county cricket. But there's a man I massively respect, and I won't name him, who's who's a, uh, a widely respected administrator and whose heart is always in the right place, who is quite a fan of these three conference structures. I think if it's structured the right way with seedings, I suppose, it can work. Uh, I, I bet if it happened and it was left alone for 10 years, we'd we'd love it. The question I ask is, why can't we just have two divisions which were working really well? And I've tried to play devil's advocate on this and suggest that the other way will work. And I, and I dare say it probably would do. But I think first and second division works. So rather than make my brain bleed next year, I'd just like to know what the hell's going on from one year to the next.
2: Ali Martin, the at least the three-conference structure gives every county a chance of winning the trophy at the end, at the end of it, doesn't it?
1: Yep. Um, and that's that's definitely one of the things I like about it. Um, and I, I do feel that, you know, as much as I was talking of two divisions for, for T20 earlier and about sort of sport in the UK being built on promotion relegation, I do sort of feel that there was probably a bit of short-termism that came in. Whether, actually, with the with Brexit sort of closing the coal pack loophole, whether that will... Have an effect that actually prevents a bit of that the, that kind of short-term thinking for counties. Um, that that may be a factor. Um, but I, I like I like three divisions. I like the idea of every team having a chance at the start at the start of the year. And actually, Derbyshire was a good example, of having you know they, they really sort of flew out the traps in the Bob Willis Trophy, didn't they? Um, but I'm not a massive fan of the the title being decided with, with a final to be honest i, I feel like the county championship is a, a competition you know it is it is a marathon isn't it but that, that is but at the end of it there is there is no question as to you know which side has, has has endured got through the season the best they are the the champions of you know of the county system and you, you'd hate for a sort of side that's been scorching away all season to suddenly run out of puff at the end of the season and be pipped you know, over five days because of a toss or a dodgy wicket or whatever, that the team that was miles away sits in sort of second place in the overall shake-up has, comes away with the title. That you know, some people might like that. I don't know, but personally, I, I think given that I'm sort of slightly against the final, I, I, I'd probably be inclined to stick with two divisions for now. But um, but yeah, unless unless you could, I mean, my other issue with the three the three conferences is is there's going to be a lot of dead cricket for a lot of counters at the end of it. You might say that's already happening. You might say there's a lot of teams at the bottom of Division Two that aren't, you know, halfway through their season. Their season's over. They're going through the motions and they're really focusing on the whiteboard stuff. If it, even I don't know, is it is it a lack of ambition? So those teams, once they've sort of fallen by the wayside in the initial group stage, will they stop. Is that is that would that be a bad move? That would that reduce the amount of cricket they play, or is a minimum of 10 first-pass games a season good enough for those counties. That would be the question I think Kruger needs to ask itself.
2: What I've been saying on the on the podcast over the last few weeks and, and my preferred structure, and then we'll go to George to get his response to that, but I quite like the regional start to it. Play it in two halves, like like has been suggested. Play the first one in the regional zones so that you get your local derbies and the fans don't have to travel so far and you can ease yourself into the season that way. And then you draw the um, second half of the season into three conferences on merit, so the, the winners and second place go go into the top tier, etc., all the way down. But I think the one way of getting rid of the dead rubbers in that second half, because one of the questions, Sean has said, if you finish up in the second division or the third division in the second half of the season, effectively all of your games are dead rubbers because what are what are you playing for? But we've seen in, in previous competitions, not just in cricket, but you can have a, a a ropey start to the season, but then come strongly towards the end of it and fly at the table and, and being contention by the end of it. So why not say that, The semi-finals, for sake of argument, are the top two teams in the first division, the top team in the second division and the top team in the third division. So you get a second bite at the cherry. If you do really well in the second half of the season in your second and third merit division, you can still have a bit of a chance of getting through and and still winning the trophy. And you you can even draw the semi-finals in the same way that you draw the IPL, where the teams that finish in the top two get two chances to get to the final rather than the teams that finish third and fourth have to, it's, it's all elimination, it's all sudden death from there on. George, where do you stand?
0: Two divisions has worked so well. Promotion and relegation has worked so well. The England team that went to number one in the rankings was developed playing tough cricket over four days on decent pitches. Uh, and uh, I, I think that where possible we could go back to that. I think with relegation, we have the perfect sort of incentive. There is peril but it actually doesn't cost the clubs anything. They really hate it, they want to avoid it, but actually it doesn't really matter. So I'm worried that with conferences, and this I would say about conferences, it's been uh, suggested by good people with good intentions, and I've heard a lot worse suggestions. So people who like it include sort of Martin Moxon, Ashley Giles, Tim Bostock, I think Richard Gould's behind it at this stage, I, I respect them all. But I think that what we will do is encourage quite a lot of soft cricket. You know, directors of cricket coaches are saying, well, re- relegation makes us make short-term decisions. I guess I can see that. But also the other point is that if you're not making short-term decisions, you're not you're making horribly soft, long-term decisions. You're not being forced to act. And then you go to Australia or somewhere where it will be cutthroat mm. and you're not used to it. So I, I fear that uh, conferences will create for some, they're a bit complicated. Uh, secondly, I think it uh, lacks the drama for spectators. And thirdly, I think it will create soft cricket. So I think it's best avoidable. I'd rather it went to two divisions, nine and nine, played 16 games. If necessary, play a couple abroad. I wouldn't mind that. But look, the direction of travel might be three divisions and you only play 10 games. I, I, I'm not sure that's enough games, but I would rather have promotion and relegation than... Uh, conferences. I think you've got to have peril. And I just think it's worked so well. And uh, again, the game's been uh, regulated on the thoughts and beliefs of coaches and directors of cricket. And that's fine. They're important. Those are important voices that must be heard. But they're not asking spectators. And I think spectators quite enjoy uh, promotion and relegation and the drama it gives. And, you know, one of the premises of the conference idea, I think, is wrong. And I'll hopefully prove that now. It, it, one of the arguments is that several counties have sort of given up on Red Bull cricket. Well, which? Because Northampton and Gloucestershire got promoted last year, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, I think Glamorgan missed out by one place. So, so Derbyshire had a good season this year, have been in Division One not that long ago. Who are these counties that don't care? Are we talking about Leicestershire? Are we talking about changing the whole structure of English cricket to encourage Leicestershire? I mean, I, I haven't actually had a good answer to that question yet. So I, I think it's a false premise, and I think there's a better way. I, but it's also it's going to happen. Look, the final, oh, it's a pleasure to be there. Uh, did it work? I thought the Bob Willis Trophy was a fantastically uh, good solution to the problems of this year. As I've said elsewhere, just because you get in a lifeboat in a disaster doesn't mean you start your next voyage in one. I don't think that a final is the way to go.
2: Thank you to Sean and uh, James for those questions on the uh, the future of the Championship. Let's zip through these next few questions quite quickly, if we can. Dan, I'll put this one to you. Have you seen anything of this young Alistair Cook chap? Um, did quite well in the uh, Bob Willis Trophy, apparently. Um, nobody seems to be playing up his England chances. Is there a reason for that? That comes from Graham.
3: Well, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. He's only got sort of four shots, hasn't he? Uh, from what I've seen, um, he can cut. He can nudge into the onside. He's got quite a decent forward defence. And very occasionally, he unfolds a cover drive. His running between the wickets is comical. He looks like Woody from Toy Story. Look, he may develop into a good player. Essex have got quite a, quite a good track record, actually, of developing England openers at top of the order. We'll have to wait and see. He's got great hair, though. Fantastic. And <laughs> someone told me he never sweats. I think he's probably a poor man's Tom Lamonby. <laughs> yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah.
2: Ali, the next question is for you. It's from Rob. Um, he says, an eternal question that he's never seen an answer to. Did Trevor Bayliss ever attend a county game whilst he was England coach?
1: Yes, he did. And I um, I, I did see this question earlier. And I said I had an amusing answer to it, which is I, I shouldn't have said that. You built it up, much, haven't you? Yeah. I did massively. But it's an answer that is kind of indicative of Trevor Bayliss. So picture the scene. I'm in the Edgbaston press box watching... Like, Oh, well, it was Somerset uh, Somerset were, were, were playing at, at Edgebaston against Warwickshire and Bayliss was in the ground so I thought well I'm going to you know doing my job I'm going I'm to go and find the bloke and this is quite I think it's probably his second year in the job maybe and I thought well he must be somewhere so I went sort of hunting around the ground and started going through the various uh, corporate boxes eventually burst into this corporate box to find Bayliss there chatting to Dougie Brown who was the director of cricket at Warwickshire at the time and I said and um, because there's both of them there, I said, oh, I said, I'm really sorry. I've got the wrong room." And Bailey's looked at me and he said, no, you haven't. You've come here to try and find me, haven't you? I was like, oh, um, yeah, fair cop. And he went, well, come on then, sit down, let's have a chat. And that was, I mean, that was kind of indicative of the bloke in that he was, you know, he, he cut through the, he cut through the bollocks. He saw exactly what I was there for, but it was still a warm enough bloke to say, sit down and, you know, have a chat, which we did do. And, and as we were doing it, Jamie Overton was tearing through Warwickshire, which was quite a sight as well. So um, he has been at a county ground, I can confirm that. That may have been his only day in the job, uh, in the five years, but he definitely did go to one day of a county cricket. He went to see the Lions game
0: uh, last year where Zach Crawley got runs. So does that ring some bells? And he wanted to pick Zach Crawley by the end of the ashes.
2: On Trevor Bailey. So I'm doing a daily IPL podcast with uh, fans from around the world at the moment, and Neil, who is the Sunrisers Hyderabad supporter, obviously Trevor Bailey is their head coach now, he keeps saying... They should do a Trevor Bayliss, so there should be more attacking. In in terms of when England were obviously very <laughs> successful and, and, and won the World Cup, was it Owen Morgan that was the attacker? Was he the aggressor in that relationship? Or was it Trevor Bayliss that drove the attacking intent?
0: Well, Owen was, of course, the captain at the 2015 World Cup. I mean, one of the great ironies is that actually the um, uh, messages probably hadn't changed that much, actually. They did talk about being aggressive and attacking at the 2015 World Cup. They just didn't have the personnel and the mentality to do it. And I think what Trevor is, uh, whatever faults you may have, he's not a complicated fellow. And he he gave a a wonderfully uncluttered advice, uh, you know, which was just go out there and smack it. And it pretty much was that. Uh, And of course, that tied in well with what Owen said. And it was just what England needed at that stage. And as they went on, they refined it a bit. The great irony being that the run chase they had in the World Cup, the perfect person for it would have been (laughs) Trotty. What were they after, 240 or something? After years of getting 350, they actually struggled to get 240. Anyway, uh, I I think they both take credit. And uh, what you always see in good coach-captain partnerships is they dovetail. But there was a lot of shared thinking there. And where I like Dieter Moore very much, but where you might criticise him was for lacking clarity, for being a wee bit complex at times. Uh, Trevor was admirably clear.
2: Dan Norcross, Jane asks about the spinner conundrum, as she puts it, in English Test cricket. A, are England on the right track with Don Bess as their premier spinner? And B, should England, uh, to try and develop spin talent, send players overseas to learn in different conditions a little bit more than they are doing at the moment?
3: Uh, sometimes with these things, it, it's a bit cyclical, isn't it? And be, the talent might not be there. It isn't always just about pitches and the time of year we play. You know, Somerset took one wicket to spin, even though they played four of their Bobolis Trophy matches in August. And this is, you know, a, a county that's renowned for taking over the weeks to in at Taunton, side of Rabad. One wicket is all they took. Uh, what I would say is, I thought England's picking a bet this season against 10 right handed West Indians and nine right handed Pakistanis was baffling. I think it was from that continuity selection they took into the first game of the Eight Years Bowl, where they went with basically the side that had played in South Africa but brought in Jimmy Anderson. And then Stuart Broad made a bit of a kerfuffle. He got put into the sides because that was obviously the right thing to do, but they forgot that Don Bess is a right arm off spinner in his early twenties. And I can see that they're trying to develop him because I think he's got something about him as a cricketer, and he can bat, he can feel well, and he will in time be a good off spinner. But not playing Jack Leach completely amused me, I'll be honest. I think he's England's best spinner at the moment. Moeen Ali probably would be England's. Best spinner. If he were not having a bit of a confidence dip, he's taken over 180 Test wickets. It's quite crazy that that resource hasn't been, I think, probably managed as well as it should have been. Really, because you know he, he should he should be the obvious choice when we go abroad if we go abroad this year to play against India and Sri Lanka. England are going to need more than one spinner. They're going to look. You'd want the left arm of Leach, and I would suggest you would want the right arm off spin of Moeen Ali, but that doesn't look like it's going to happen. I'm not sure Adil Rashid is the right option to play red ball cricket. And I don't think there are many other good spinners of a good age at the moment, but there are some coming through. It's the likes of Amaverdi. Uh, I would expect him to kick on over the course of the next few years. But with off spinners, it's quite rare to find an English off spinner who's going to pull up trees in their early 20s. And it's, you know, Graham Swan made a kind of uh, taught it to you, Ali. I think actually, I think it was, it, it was, it, it, it it, was. It, yeah, it was to you saying there was a plea, it was a come and get me plea, as they say in football, to mm. say, um, I'd really like to work with England spinners. And he is a brilliant, you know, a bit like Shane Warne on leg spin. Graham Swan is a, is a terrific authority on off spin. I've worked with him many times on Test Match Special. And when he talks about off spin, he's riveting. And it does seem to me that he would be a very good man to get involved. I think he could transform the way best bowls over a period of years. Uh, I think they could think like that. About them going abroad, I don't think it's simple as that. Is it? I mean, they're not quite sort of cattle. You can't just send someone abroad, but um, uh, it probably is advisable for English spinners to bowl on turning tracks and understand what you need to do on those tracks. So, you know, more of them could play in the subcontinent. That probably wouldn't be a bad thing.
1: The, the, the upshot of that chat with Graeme Swan is that he hasn't had any contact from England, so it didn't work in terms of himself. But I thought the, the wider point that he raised on that one about a lack of support for English spin, a uh, sort of uh, sort of slightly wishful thinking, blind optimism that they'll be all right on the night element has crept in over the last year and a half. Um, and I think that the way that they've managed Ali in particular, and I think the lack of support that he and Adil Rashid have had in Red Bull cricket and particularly with Rashid a lack of understanding as to how leg spin works over four and five day cricket um, has has really held them back and I don't think they're any closer to finding their spinner. Really, Don Bess is a nice spunky young lad um, who's got a a bit about him as Trevor Bayliss used to say Um, but he is massively over promoted at the moment, he's being asked to earn at the top level and I Actually, thought the interview that he did with Shane Warne mid-test match on Sky. I thought that was slightly embarrassing um, for him and all concerned. Albeit great access by Sky and you know a great insight for for the viewer in terms of you know what you need to do. But I actually thought it was a bit embarrassing. These are the kind of conversations he should be having with someone a settled, almost full-time coach that he can build a relationship with and learn from over a period of time, not five minutes with Shane Warne with the sky cameras and the, uh, and the population watching.
0: James, they don't need to be sending them abroad to bowl. They need to have a domestic structure where the first-class game isn't played in winter. <laughs> yeah. If you've got a white ball window, if you've got a white ball window, you won't produce, you won't give your spinners the best chance to produce. That's simple. When you've got a white ball window, you're not prioritising the development of red ball players.
3: It wasn't played in winter this year, though, was it, George? It was sort of played in August and spinners
0: didn't pull up trees. Well, that's one season.
3: Yeah, I know. No, generally, it's, it's, the it's county not,
0: uh, season, is, and it, and it is for next season. Well, yeah. there aren't any. I mean, it takes a while to, to develop spinners. So you have to allow them several seasons and lots of games of bowling. And having, you know, one season where there are some games in a particularly wet August doesn't necessarily give them the best opportunity. I think Jack Leach had bowled eight overs, hadn't he? Admittedly, he had been in the bubble. But, you know, you, you need to change the structure of English cricket and allow it to be uh, more uh, played through the season for a number of years to allow the talented young spinners the chance to bowl and gain the experience they require. You know, England do send spinners abroad. They've done that quite well in recent years. But I think the basic thing is our structure doesn't allow it. Obviously, disproportionately encourages Seamus.
2: George, stay with you. What are we expecting England's winter to look like over the next six months? And I guess a lot of that's under threat and dependent on COVID as well, isn't it?
0: Yeah, well, I think, you know, you you wouldn't uh, have absolutely certain plans at this stage, but they're hoping to go to South Africa, play some ODIs in December. They're hoping to go to Sri Lanka in January for two test series. And then after that, there's, you know, this test series against India, sorry, an all-format tour now against India. I suspect that'll be in the UAE. I suspect it won't be five tests. Currently, three or four, I suspect. And I suspect that India won't play all five tests against England next summer either. I suspect that will be four. And that we may see some other uh, tourists also playing tests added to the schedule. Tom
3: Harrison came on to the BBC for the um, the live game against England's women, England women against West Indies. And he said, plan early. And uh, I think it was act late because uh, the assumption is, They've still got a plan for these tours to South Africa for one-day cricket. There's five one-days due in South Africa, which they're still hopeful of, um, a Sri Lanka tour and India, wherever it may be. But India haven't been able to give them, quite understandably, any clarity whatsoever. So they're, they're planning, but they they haven't been able to give any um, assurance at this stage. And we're just going to have to wait, as we as we have done with it. With all, all cricket around the world, going to have to wait, isn't it? I do think that, am I just being a complete fantasist? I thought it would have been wonderful if New Zealand had just been turned into a cricket dome for this winter and all the countries had gone there, quarantined for two weeks, and just played an inordinate amount of cricket from like late October until the end of March, wandering all the way around New Zealand. It's, uh, it's, it's there. It's like a fun palace. We, we should be using it.
2: That's something for the New Zealand Tourist Board. A fun Palace is think, the is the new tagline.
0: Ridiculous though it sounds, I think they've put COVID-free being COVID-free ahead of being a, a
3: cricket venue. Yeah, but if you quarantine everybody, everybody that turns up for the two weeks beforehand, in just the same way as you know the West Indies and Pakistan when they came over, they they, they, were, they were COVID secure. I'm not suggesting that loads of fans go over. I'm just suggesting that you know that certain English journalists and radio broadcasters. <laughs> Are permitted to go and spend five months in New Zealand watching wall to war cricket as every country plays each other.
2: Ali Martin, where does Ben Stokes rank on the greatest all rounder conversation? Is he the best of all time?
1: Yeah, he's the greatest. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't. <laughs> uh, oh God, I mean, how, how do you answer that question? I mean, for a start, he's a batting all rounder, you've got bowling all rounders, you've got, I mean, He's just bloody brilliant, isn't he? And that's that's all you need to know. We don't need an all-time ranking. We've just got to say that right now he's the best around. England are very lucky to have him, and there isn't a country out there that doesn't wish that he was uh, well that his dad. That not moved over and started coaching rugby league in their country. All-time greatest
3: all-rounder is Wilf Rhodes, so there's, there could be no doubt about that. He's got 4,100 plus wickets, and 29,000 runs. End of argument.
2: He never did it in front of the sky cameras, though, did he?
3: He didn't do it on a wet Wednesday in November.
2: <laughs> Stay with you, Dan. All-time favourite and current favourite players?
3: Viv Richardson, Malcolm Marshall, when I was growing up, for very obvious reasons. Just a swagger. I did an event with Viv last year, last October, November, at a club, a little club in Nottinghamshire, where we were doing an exchange program with the with Antigua. And there was a crowd there of, of people from all ages, all ages, you know, from sort of 9, 10 up to 70-odd. And before um, we started the interview, I said, before we begin, can, can I get you to do your walk-on? You know, so wickets just fall you're walking out to the creek. So I sent him to the back of the room, and he walked on and he did the swagger and this entire room of like 200 people, many of whom were just like kids who'd never seen him before, stood and and shrieked with joy because the guy's presence and charisma, I think, is um, just second to none. And uh, my favourite cricketer at the moment is a Surrey bias. Um, It's Ollie Pope. Uh, He hasn't had the best summer. He did get a nice 90. But I, for some reason, believe that over the course of the next 15 years, He's going to be like everything we always wanted Ian Bell to be. And it's and, and harsh on Ian Bell because he was brilliant. Average went over 40, scored over 7,000 runs. But I think Ollie Pope is like him, but add five to his average. I think he's going to be absolutely fantastic. He's highly intelligent, got a great cricket brain. He plays every shot. He gets out in every conceivable fashion apart from hand handled the ball, which doesn't exist anymore. It's now obstructing the field. So he needs to add that to his repertoire. Um, and I think he's, yeah, I, I think he's just magical to watch.
2: Thank you to uh, Ritter Brota for uh, this question. George, the same one for you. Your favourite cricketer of all time and your favourite current player?
0: Well, having grown up watching, you know, that Somerset team with both of them, Richards and Garner, I'd have to say Adrian Shanker. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and that's uh, both now and all time with an honourable mention for Jack Shantry. <laughs> Ali, what about you?
1: Uh, what's it? Um, growing up, it was I was I loved Robin Smith and um, I love this sort of open chested, you know, the bloke coming out with his little pencil mustache and you know the cut shop that everyone that everyone fell in love with of, of, of my sort of vintage and from, and uh, and Devin Malcolm as well who I you know I kind of look back on I just think God oh, I wish he'd been around now in a sort of era of central contracts and maybe more synthetic captaincy and people focusing on you know what he could do. Um, rather than what he couldn't try to... I mean, why did English cricket try and turn him into a fast, medium outswing swing ball? I mean, what, what the hell was all that about? So there's those two from that era, and these days... I don't know, it's hard to look past Chris Wokes, isn't
2: it? I'm going to come to you, Dan, for this next Always. question. Um, Dan, you're a guy that I reckon could do some shapes on a dance floor. And Andy's asking oh, yeah. this question. If you were to, to perform some dance floor manoeuvres, Using only the umpire's signals, what uh, what signals would you use? Andy goes for six six free hit power play. That would be his signature move. What would yours be?
3: Um, I think I'd start with a no ball, and then I'd extend the left arm out to make the wide. I'd bring my hands above my head and do a kind of I wouldn't normally, but do a Billy Bowden six, and end with a pointed dismissal,
2: <laughs>
3: the pointed out sign. You go that though? Noble wide
0: 666 six, six, out. I've seen him on a dance floor. All he does is signal for a drink. Tr-
2: <laughs> <laughs> I know which one I believe. <laughs> we have two questions left, guys. And thank you very, very much indeed for joining me today um, for this. I've kept you uh, a long, long time. And I really um, appreciate your time on the Cricket Badger podcast, 200th edition. And we have a question for both George and Ali. And then a final question for Dan. But Nick Scribbler, who is a Scribbler himself, um, you know, hence the name. How hard do you have to work to find an angle when you're writing your news pieces? Um, he finds writing regularly on the same subject. He tends to find he kind of repeats himself a bit, I think, and falls into the same traps. Do you guys have to uh, find different ways to engage the audience? Is there a process you use or do you just have to think? Do you just use your brain? Ali, start with you
1: um i could I'll tell you what i'm going in terms of repetition i remember saying to george once i think he'd written a piece in which there was a couple of on the george de bell bingo card a couple of things have been ticked off margins of the season etc and i put this to george and he said he looked at me and said look no one turns up at a rolling stones gig wanting to hear new material <laughs> uh, which, I, <laughs> which i thought was brilliant and it stuck with me and it, and it, and it took away the fear of repetition on my part do you know what? I, In terms of the way I work, I, I, I am a huge consumer of cricket media. So I, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, unless I'm on them myself because I can't stand the sound of my own voice. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, I try and consume as much as I can. I try and read as much as I can. And actually, as a result, it just gets the brain ticking over you, you and angles come to you, ideas come to you. Um, I find that professional cricketers and ex-pros as well are very good at giving you ideas without realising, because they, they might not have the sharp sort of news senses for what's there, but they certainly know what's going on. So I find that listening to a lot of people, it, it just translates into ideas and angles. And then it's about, in terms of gathering, news gathering, it's about taking those ideas and angles, picking up a phone and finding out what's going on.
0: George? Um, I suppose, uh, well, I, everything that Ali said was good and sensible and true. I, I suppose that sometimes the struggle is part of the process. Um, I had to write a column for the cricketer last night and it took absolutely hours. I don't know why. Uh, But I've become very uh, comfortable with that cursor just sitting there blinking, mocking you. Uh, And what I've learned is that it's good to care and it's better to go through that agonising process than just sort of cast it off and just think another dollar another day. Some days it comes pretty easy. Very often uh it's a real pleasure do you, do you know i don't mind so much the, the the repetition the days where something extraordinary happens and you feel you need to justify it those are the real challenges um i'll give you an example on both uh, both involving ben stokes last summer i don't look back on the world cup that fondly because i wrote poorly i had a real struggle don't know why but i i just didn't nail it uh but his lead innings, i felt i did and and it sort of changes your recollection of it in a in a funny way the easy answer would be we never really worked a day in our life because we watch and talk about cricket all day but obviously some days you do feel like you're struggling a little bit Uh, and uh, I guess you try and clarify exactly what you think you try and give yourself a moment you might might go outside and grab a breath of fresh air and you think what do I really think about what's happening here And if you can get just that moment of clarity, you only need that. You only need one moment of inspiration or clarity and then you're away. Uh, But it's worth struggling over that sometimes. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Just a quick word from a broadcast
3: point of view is is that we have to embrace repetition Mm. because you can't. and, And you see some broadcasters come in with a thesaurus because they want to try and find a different way of saying drove, cut, thwacked, walloped, you know. And you can see the, their brains, because they've already said he's hammered that through the offside, desperately trying to find a different verb. That actually, doesn't really matter, does it? Because in, in cricket, repetition, it's, well, of course it's a repetition. They come in and bowl and somebody hits it, you know. You might want to try and keep it fresh every now and then. But I think, you, I think, as Ali says, you should embrace repetition.
2: A question for any of you to come in on um, on the same subject. Has there ever been a time where you've been out walking the night before a big game and you've thought about a way into a piece or something to say the following day on the microphone and you've tried to shoehorn it in, or do you just let it flow naturally on the day?
3: That's for them. I never walk the night before a game. My routine is always firmly <laughs> seated in a bar.
2: <laughs> what about you guys? Is there any time that you've had a paragraph written the day before a game that you think, oh, I'm going to use that tomorrow?
1: Uh, speaking personally, uh, you, you you have thoughts and ideas and you kind of, there are, especially mid test match or mid, you know, mid sort of multi-day game where you kind of think you might set yourself up for the next day thinking, I, I would like this to occur so that I can go into this, etc. It never works out like that. You're always pretty much reacting to what unfolds in front of you. And just to, just to clarify that when I was sort of explaining about what I do earlier, uh, like George. In fact, I suspect more than George because he's a, he's a more talented writer than I am, but my God, there are days when you have to absolutely hack it out of your soul and um, they're pretty unpleasant. But, you know, you get the job done and the sun comes up the next day and as George pointed out, you, you know, we're, we're very lucky to be doing what we're doing and, um, you know, don't take a second of it for granted.
2: Dan, the final question of the podcast goes to you, and it comes from uh, Tim Peach, who works for the BBC, so I guess you know him. And I don't know if this is a scurrilous question, where he's trying to lead me down a dark alley. Uh, But he says, can you ask Dan if he has any fascinating anecdotes about Arthur Fagg or Betty Snowball that he could share?
3: Well, the thing is, he's chosen two of my favourite people in cricket. Arthur Fagg, the legendary umpire, named after one of my favourite relaxation tools and uh, he he was a stout fellow, but I've got no real anecdotes about Arthur Fagg except to say that I was always mesmerized by pictures of his bulk and the wondrousness of his name, albeit that there are two Gs at the end of it. As for Betty Snowball, the thing about Snowball is that Snowball is one of two women that I have fallen in love with in my life, having never seen, never heard, never touched, just by seeing their names. The other is Wendy Wimbush. (laughs) And upon seeing their names in print as a young boy, I became uh, well, I got an attack of the vapours. I I, had to sit in a dark and quiet room because the uh, idea—they just struck me. They—they like they were made for me. They were carved out of a kind of Norcrobian fantasy. Wendy Wimbush, how sexy does that sound? you been this, Doc. Do you know? I haven't. I haven't. haven't. She'd she'd be staggered to know it because she sent me me quite a waspish email once when I was commentating in Bangladesh. And she said, um, in my first overseas tour, she said, Daniel, congratulations on your Elevation to Deskmat Special. I'm sure, though, you were able to hear a loud sound of an entire country wailing in despair at you. Thought, Oh, dear, what have I done? She said, "Um, the word trail does not exist in cricket. You keep saying, England trail Bangladesh by X number of runs. This is not a cricket word. Now, um, I have no idea if that's true. All I do is I see the word trail everywhere, and everybody in cricket uses it, with with the exception of Wendy Wimbush. But I apologize. (laughs) Uh, Back to Snowball. When I discovered that Snowball was a a wicketkeeper and a batter of some extraordinary repute, that was it. I was just in love. And I urge anybody out there to go in search of Snowball's career because she does not disappoint. She was truly epic England player, uh, born in 19... I want to say 1904, died about 1988, uh, very sadly, in her 80s. Uh, she wore a very um, a very imaginative titler. You could sort of see her doing the Charleston. And I always imagined myself, you know, lazily going down the Isis in Oxford with a hamper of champagne and poke salmon sandwiches as... Um, as Betty and I gazed into each other's eyes and talked about Morris Leyland and um, Wilf Rhodes. and You know, uh, but it was never to be. But anyway, um, put very simply, yeah, I think she was the first woman I I fell in love with as a child,
2: Betty Snowball. She'd be a headline writer's dream, wouldn't she, Snowball, Um, if she was around today? It'd be fantastic. Go
3: on, Ali. Ali, Ali, Ali's the man for this, because what, what hasn't been asked him is what his favourite pun is. He's, he is renowned in the cricket writers' crew, the scribblers' crew, for being the quickest and sharpest punster in the box. Maybe maybe very, George... Very true. Very true. It is, isn't it? What, what's your favourite Ali pun? So me there's so many.
0: Oh, you're asking me.
3: I, I have no idea, because it's probably
0: at my expense. But he's uh, <laughs> uh, very, very witty.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah, except on podcasts, where I just sort of freeze up. you um, <laughs> You're doing, you're doing a Viv Richards to me here. You make, you're trying to make me perform on the spot.
0: And the only no. ones I can think of were inappropriate. <laughs> were, were any about Betty Noble. It's that Badger style.
2: I will bring this 200th edition of the Cricket Badger podcast to a halt. And uh, thank you again, gentlemen, for your time. I'll say goodbye to you individually. Ali Martin, it's been a, a pleasure to catch up with you and see your little face on my screen um, to my right today. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: Thank you for
2: having me, James. And uh, George, as always, pleasure to have you on the Cricket Badger podcast. Uh, thank you for your time today.
0: Well, thanks. And thank you for the work you did with uh, Michael Carberry and Azim Rafiq as well, because uh, it's obviously very important. And I'm sorry, I probably made a bit of a fool of myself earlier, but there we are.
2: No, don't worry about that at all. And Dan Lawcross, thank you as well. You're always my landmark man. We're doing daily podcasts throughout the IPL. So get yourself booked up and ready for the 250th. It's not probably that far away from us, but thanks again for coming on.
3: Oh, it's always one of those honours I really look forward to. I kind of, like coming on these things, I sort of feel like either Sasha Distel or Angela Rippon doing the Morecambe and Wise show. It's like, you know, really, yeah, I love it.
2: You've not got the legs for the the Angela Rippon thing, I think.
3: (laughs) No, but Wendy Wimbush does.
2: (laughs) And on that note, um, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for supporting the podcast over the 200 editions. And uh, thank you to everybody that's been involved. And we'll see you next time.